Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players by trumpet players and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby-Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by our good friends at ChopSaver, developed for musicians to relieve and reduce irritating and even painful symptoms, including chapping, swelling, soreness, and fatigue. Now doctors are recommending the product for any patients with severely dry, chapped lips. Petroleum and gluten-free, nothing lasts as long and soothes like ChopSaver. New this fall, ChopSaver for iPhone. And by Lipslur World Headquarters. The world's finest artisan lip slurs curated especially for you in a hyperbolic sarcasm chamber in America's heartland. Feeling good about yourself and need to be knocked down a couple of pegs? Try modern lip slurs. Finally, feel like you're getting somewhere on the horn? Try progressive lip slurs. If things seem to be going your way, you're just not spending enough time with Scott Belk. For all the latest in sarcastic lip slurs, go to www.trumpetshed.com. And now a little about the show. We essentially have three segments, warming up, couple things, and no offense. We will use these segments to cover information that Joey Bryan and I think is important. Gentlemen, shall we? This is a segment we like to call warming up, and it gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what have you got for us today? Well, like all chances to warm up, I want to talk about cornet. Oh, and God. so today, <laughs> of course you do. So I knew there should have been guidelines. So today I want to talk about the cornet in the modern wind band. So I was reading this really horrifically bad article in Texas Bandmasters. No, I'm kidding. It's not a bad article. <laughs> wow. wow. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of an old article. It's from 93. It's uh, uh, Dr. Richard Strange, who is the uh, longtime uh, director of bands at Arizona State. So he goes through this long convoluted process. Um, to talk about his to talk about how it's it's actually in the modern wind band the cornet doesn't really have a place because trumpet players don't want to do it and they sound like trumpet players when they do it um and that composers have no idea what they're doing when they're when they're writing for cornet there's no real distinction and so maybe that's true maybe that's not true but if a composer actually writes it i've got to assume that they know what they're talking about and maybe they could uh we could help cornet players uh, trumpet players make that transition and we can make a really different color in the in the wind band all right so let me, I, wait, let me ask you so you're saying his contention was one of his reasons for not doing this is trumpet players just don't want to do it yes well okay whether or not that's true is sort of ludicrous but the other part is this i as when we were growing up most of the parts would be written as cornet parts and sometimes there'd be cornet and trumpet parts and i don't think there was a real big designation when I was growing up as to what really should have been a trumpet part. It was just sort of a default setting for cornet. Do you think that that's changed or is better designated now by composers? I think they understand a little bit more so than they did and, and somewhat um, in the same way that a composer might uh, denote a baritone versus euphonium. So making that distinction. Um, and they don't really make that distinction enough, I think, in, in modern wind band writing. But certainly um, there's a lot of music written um, 
where the cornet parts are a little bit more florid, a little bit more lyrical, and the trumpet parts are a little bit more fanfare, a little bit brighter, uh, and sometimes a little bit louder. Then there's also those times when they're doubled, playing right. exactly the same part. You know, we, we recorded a lot of records over the last few years with Keystone Wind Ensemble, Jack Stamps Group, and we always Dang. used, cor- thank you, we always used cornets on cornet parts and trumpet on trumpet parts. Um, and so all those records that are out on clavier that we followed that philosophy. Now, I love to hear this. Yeah. I mean, but the, the issue is like, I think part of it is like new wind band stuff. And I've only heard this. I don't spend as much time with wind band scores as you two think I do, but, um, I at can any see rate, the turtleneck from here. <laughs> see the turtleneck through the podcast. not wearing it today. Um, but they're simply just writing three trumpet parts. The designation kind of went away. I'm not sure why it went away, but I, I think it's a shame, especially after last week we talked about even starting kids on cornet. I think it's just it's a color that we're missing when we don't include it. So I'm on board with you, Brian. All right. And we're agreeing way too often. We are. And I just not... think that you're left out. You felt left out because I brought up the cornet last week. Next week, Joey, what are you going to say about the cornet? I'm bringing all cornet all the time. I'm not fully convinced until I'm really sure that composers are actually making the designation on purpose. And I'm not sure that's always, that's always the case. Right. Yeah. I don't think they are. Well, I know it has gone away. I mean, you, you look now and it's simply three trumpet parts. So, you know, is there any correlation here? Look at jazz ensemble, right? Playing in there and marked flugelhorn, right? That's no one would even question that. I mean, that's what that is. You wouldn't play. I mean, if you had any means at all, you wouldn't play the flugelhorn part on a trumpet. You try not to anyway. But cornet gets played on trumpet we, all the time. Are we, are we allowed to uh, make fun of our colleagues across the country? I think that's why we're, we're here. Supposed to. All right, speaking yes. of flugelhorn parts, there was a one year when I teach up at Birch Creek up in Door County, which I'm going to miss dearly this summer as it's been canceled. Ding. Um, it's, it's a great camp, a great two-week high school camp. It's a great barn. And there was a year uh, that Clay Jenkins and I taught there at the same the same session. And I was very excited to meet Clay. I hadn't met him before. We never played together. And we're in our first rehearsal and we're playing through and get to one part mark flugel. So I pick up my flugel and he leans over and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't have mine. I thought, okay. <laughs> you know, he left it up in his room. No big deal. So afterwards I said, oh, is it just up? You know, it's the first day. He goes, oh, no, I didn't bring it. I don't play flugelhorn. And I said, oh. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So good. And I believe in our discussions, his contention is way too many times that there are jazz players who like to hide their lack of clear and pure sounds by just switching to flugelhorn, especially on ballads. And he's not wrong in that contention. <laughs> but I said, but, you know, there are times where the composer is saying, I want this to be a flugelhorn. He's like, yeah, <laughs> just blew it off. <laughs> I loved it so much. It's like, wow. I want to grow up and be Clay Jenkins where I can just say, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's awesome. I'm not doing what the composer wrote. Right. It's great. He <laughs> was like a bridge too far. The negative about this is that if you, if, if let's say a director of band somewhere at a university decides, all right, we're going to play cornets on cornet parts, right? The main thing here, I just want to put it out there. You got to have the right mouthpiece. I mean, that's key. Now I know, Brian, you've been involved uh, pretty much in designing one, you and some others. Oh, here we go. Yeah, and, uh, Vince Martino, me, and some others, and some other people uh, other, who put other people access to, but <laughs> and other, but it's important, I think, to make sure you have the right mouthpiece. And you did a great job with that mouthpiece, by the way. Yeah, I think the mouthpiece is great. I, I would love a kickback by our sponsor. So by wait, the way. You, Brian, yes. you're saying you're happy with the mouthpiece you're playing on pick on on, on cornet now? I, yes, I'm very happy with that. You mouthpiece. like that? 
I love that mouthpiece. You're yeah. welcome. It's a great yeah. mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I play a similar mouthpiece that I designed with Peter Pickett. Oh my God, we're gonna have to get with Peter Pickett. We're gonna have to get Peter on the on the show here too. Joey's exact up. words during that conversation put his hand in my face and said, "Stop talking, Peter. I'm gonna tell you what he wants." <laughs> Pretty much how Brian got his cornet pieces too. Experience. (laughs) Except Brian wasn't there. I just found him and said, "Hey, listen, what you sent Brian isn't what he wants. Here's what he actually wants." And he said, "Oh, I can do that." And a month later, done. But Peter Pickett is the man, and he saved cornet humanity with that mouthpiece. I so listen. Moving on here and warming up, I was going to talk about the resurgence of brass chamber music due to this COVID crisis and the fact that we might have limited personnel when we get back in smaller numbers and all that. But I was going to do that till just a few minutes before we started. But then I just got the most recent edition of the ITG Journal. And so I'm going to just change Uh-oh. course Scoop. for a moment. Scoop. Breaking news. Oh yeah. There's a review of a beautiful trumpet album here called Parable by Yours Truly. Oh, God. And I <laughs> don't... <did> album? Uh, <laughs> Is this now, your album, Bill? It's my album. Plugging Did you do my your own, own album. Review? I, no, actually, I didn't. And I don't know John Kilgore, but we are friends now, John. Forever. Yes. This is instructor trumpet at Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. And thank you, John. Go Wildcats. Really great things about the record. I appreciate that. And mention nothing about articulation, which is a complete victory for me. It really is. You win. I totally win. But he said some nice things about the Messiah College ensembles on the record, too. So thank you to John. And uh, those you know, Catholic kids can really play. They can play. <laughs> I'm just done fighting over it. I'm going to accept it. Now. It's true. You wouldn't say they can't play. Why would you fight with that? No, not that part. The Catholic part. <laughs> I've given well, up. It's Messiah. It's a good Catholic school. You guys Messiah good University there. as of July 1. Oh, that's right. M-U, which makes you mu, which is a Greek letter. Nice. It's M-U, true. I-U. Rather than M-C. Are you? Are you? I love that Brian's is a question. But you guys should go to the Moo Greek letter as your uh, logo. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that would go over big, I think. It'd be great. Nonetheless, thank you, John Kilgore, for helping with this session of warming up. Joey, what do you got today? I want to answer the one question that's been plaguing trumpet players for generations. And it's a silly question, one that drives me a little nuts. We all have our personal preferences. So let me ask you guys. There are four options. Raw brass, lacquer, silver, or gold? And does it make a difference? It depends on the horn. Are you saying it makes a difference? I'm saying it makes a difference. Oh, we're going to do some play tests. We're yeah, going to do I, some blind play tests. Well, I'm a, so so here's, here's the thing that leads. I'm just having to be honest with myself and say I know it makes a difference to me. So when Shires built my C trumpet a few years ago, um, I took it in raw brass just to try it out to make sure that it was what I wanted. Brian, you were there when we put it together. Yes. Yeah. I know you didn't remember. It was no. a great day for me. Anyway, so when then the time came that I decided that it was all right and they wanted to silver plate it, I wouldn't let them because I was afraid it would change. I think it makes a difference. I believe it makes a difference. And lacquer, right out. Brian? It- it totally makes a difference. Um, so any, what, any, diff- what vi- difference does it make other than visually? 
depends. I think it makes an acoustical difference. So I, no matter what you do to the instrument, it will change something about the way it plays or the way it sounds. It may be a big difference, maybe a small difference, but it's going to change something. And I think for different players, it will change it in different ways. So um, when I got my new um, Bach anniversary B flat, um, when I was at the factory, I tried out the, the silver version and the lacquer version. I think the silver version is a, for me, a flamethrower. It was way brighter. Yeah. Well, you don't need that. Then, you, you're how, loud the, so, how loud are the valves? Yeah. That's, <laughs> did you get up? Did you find a set of valves that were loud enough for you? No, not, not new. You got to work those things in to make them loud <laughs> with a hammer. So here's why I like my C trumpet is lacquer. My B flat is silver. You know that I struggle with transposition. So I want to be reminded which one I have in hand when I pick it up. Do you know what I mean? I, it's, so it's a, for me, it's really a color coding issue. And he can't have anything extra that will dull his sound anymore. Yes. And so I was just so afraid. So he needs that, that silver anniversary Bach. Yeah, exactly. But like if you play the gold-plated um, Shilky piccolo, that's a quite a different sound than the, than the silver-plated Shilky piccolo. Way different. All right, we're going to talk to Shilke Young. We're going to do some blind blind tests on this well, episode, on okay, the show. Well, well, let's go a step further then. What about, and Brian, you would know more in this group than Joey would, but what about mouthpiece design? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what, about, what about a gold-plated mouthpiece? I mean, there's comfort issues there, but does it change the sound? Less so than an entire horn plated in gold. You don't care about mouthpieces no, because it doesn't have any impect on the volume you put into a room. That's right. Your valve noise and sheer decibels. You can play it loud. doesn't matter what it is. Unbelievable. <laughs> the we loudest are, cornet yeah. player I know. We are not in agreement here, boys. I'm telling you. All right. I think First horns, horns are different, but I don't think that I don't think it makes a significant difference at all in the horn. What? Well, I maybe say, not significant, but a no, this is. This is going to require another road trip to Bloomington and a blind taste test. Right. Come on out. There we go. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Always up for a trip out to Bloomington. This is where it all happens. Fun, fun town. The Absolutely. center of it all. Joey taught all day and we just walked around and ate lunch. <laughs> then we fantastic. ate dinner. It was great. We did eat, yeah, best sabbatical ever. All right, and now, boys, to the heart of the matter, the focal point of today's show, it's time for a couple things. Recently, it's become popular for students to trace their musical lineage by identifying their teachers and grand teachers. I like this approach. I think it's a great idea. Um, and as part of a bigger project that I'm working on separately, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to use this as a platform to plug stuff that I'm doing. Do you, you know want to I mean? read from your review again? Uh, no, the review I think we've covered, uh, which, by the way, again, is in the new ITG journal. What page um, is that? 79, I think. I just glanced <laughs> at it. <laughs> um, but, you know, let's just say I were writing a book, which I am. But so there's a chapter in the book called Confluence. And this this deals with this idea of all the things in our career and our path that have fed into us. Sorry, I'm a Western Pennsylvania guy. The confluence is important to me, right? The Monongahela River, right? Allegheny River come together at Three River Stadium. God rest its soul. And, you know, form the Ohio River. Go Steelers. So 
this idea of confluence, <laughs> all the things that have led, led in that feed into us that have had an impact on us through our musical life, teachers and experiences and all that. Give me something about former teachers, how they contributed to you, or a little bit about the confluence in your life. Joey, get us started. Wow, I could talk about this, I don't know, for another, at least a couple of hours. This is huge, huge, absolutely, because uh, I often uh, talk about that I'm a result of, of really, really good teaching, because it's easy to look at professionals and just think they were always good. And like we talked about before, nobody starts off at a professional level, so how do you get there? And some people may do it with a little bit of help. Some people do it with an awful lot of help. Uh, some people, there's always, you know, a lot in the middle, whether it's band directors. Um, but boy, I had great trumpet teachers. I also had great band directors. But I will tell you this, I was in the end of sixth grade, getting serious. I started in sixth grade. I wanted to take lessons. So I talked to my mother. I said, I want to take lessons. Took me down to the music store. There's a guy that was teaching lessons there. I took about four lessons with this guy. And I was finishing up sixth grade, 10, 11 years old. And I went to my mother and I said, no, this guy's not it. This isn't it. And to my mother's mm -hmm. credit, she said, okay, let's see if we can find you somebody else. So we talked to my band director and she called uh, the guy who played principal in the San Antonio Symphony at the time. It was a guy named Bernie Nero and said, listen, I got this kid. And so she's the band director. Uh, her name is Cindy Michael. And she was a trumpet player as well. She said to my mother and to me, listen, um, Bernie's great. He, he doesn't, he doesn't really like teaching that much. And he, you know, he could be a little, well, um, he said he'd meet you. So I go over there mm -hmm. and I studied with Bernie Nero for the rest, for the most of the next two and a half years until he ended up moving to the Austin Symphony. He would start every lesson, something like, Wow. Women, I just don't know what I'm gonna do. And then we'd play trumpet and I was 11. <laughs> he was the first one to tell me. Life get, lessons. Yeah, you would get to, he told me you get two days off a year. You get your birthday and you get Christmas. Again, I was 11 years old. And he would look at me and say, what are you doing? You just can't play trumpet like that, which many teachers have said to me in helping me get better. But to this day, I see pictures of myself play and I think that looks like Bernie Nero, like that setup and how I got going. Instrumental in that. Yeah. Right? Is that great? Those things do show up, right? Like I've had people say that to me, like when you were standing there, you looked like, you know, yeah. name a former teacher. And I think it's just, it's in there, whether you're consciously thinking about it or not. Now I've had great fortune to have great trip teachers. So after my sophomore year of high school, I ended up going to the Eastman, the school of music summer camp. They used to have this six week high school summer jazz camp. And Vince DiMartino was the band leader and the trumpet teacher. So he's running Dang. the big band. Um, so I'm playing lead in the big band and I'm taking trouble lessons. And Al Hood, if you guys know Al at the University of Denver, yeah. standing right yeah. next to me. This is where Al, Al and I got to be friends. So, you know, here I am thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good high school trumpet player. And Vince is sitting next to me in lessons going, um, yeah, here's what you need to be working on. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm going, oh, oh. And he was the first one to, to put this concept in my head. Hey, listen, you are a good high school trumpet player, but the minute you get out of high school, you need to think of yourself as a professional trumpet player, and then I'm your competition. And I was thinking, whoa, 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 wow. whoa, but you're a professional. Oh, wait a minute. I want to be a professional. Right. Right? Right. So Vince, in just six weeks, huge imprint on me there. And of course, we've stayed in contact, you know, all the way through the years, but I spent six weeks intensely with Vince, and it was unbelievable. So I go to college. Spent my freshman year at Juilliard School studying with Mel Broyles, who was principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. So he liked to teach in the stairwells of the Met. So your first lesson, he'd meet you at the stage door and teach you how to come in, and he'd have chairs set up, and you'd just go down there. And he and the lessons were just reading. 
reading and transposing and reading and transposing and reading and transposing. And I thought, okay, right. he's setting a trap for me. So every week the lesson was something like, give me that book, give me this horn, play this. Give me that horn, give me this book, play this. So I'd write all these down. I'd go practice. The next week he wouldn't hear any of it. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, he's setting no. a trap for me. <laughs> I'm going to keep this stuff up. So I go through the whole first semester and I come back for the second semester. I said, Mr. Broyles, um, you know, we play all this, this stuff in the lessons and you tell me what to do. And I, I, I go practice it. You never, you never hear any of this stuff again. He said, I, I'm assuming if you practice, it, you can play it. And I don't need to hear that. And that was his concept. And he had a mixed, uh, mixed reviews as a teacher back then, because I think there were a lot of people who just didn't kind of get what he was teaching, which was, yep. here's what you go do. You go do it. Now, once you've done it, right. I don't need that. Then come in here and we're going to do some more stuff. He was fantastic. He was great, right? So then uh, uh, aside from him, the, the school wasn't a good fit for me. So I transferred and went to Eastman. I studied with Barbara Butler throughout the rest of my undergrad, who was and is spectacular. She would sit there and look. And um, one of my colleagues, John Rommel, I teach with, I was asking when I got here, so what is it about Barbara? And I said, I can sum it up like this. She's going to show you where the bar is. The bar is this high. And if you don't get there, she's not going to let up. So it's like, I need it to be like this. And I would play it and she would say, no, well. <laughs> I need it to be, let's try this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I try it again. No, it needs to be this, 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 this. What about now? No. And that bar, it's absolute. Where is greatness of trumpet playing, greatness of musical artistry? Where is that? And that bar does not move. That's where it is. And you got to go get it. And she just She's... built that in so that that is fundamental and that's how it goes. Right? It's just non-negotiable, right? Non-negotiable. It it's where it is. So, you know, that kind of teaching, was, you put all these things together. So I go out and work for a couple of years and then I start my master's. So I go to the University of Miami. Now I was doing my master's in jazz studies, but Gil Johnson from the Philadelphia Orchestra all the years was the trumpet teacher. Mm -hmm. So I was his teaching assistant while I was doing my master's degree. And the odd part is if, if you know anything about me as a player is I've made most of my career playing on the commercial side of the instrument. I made a living as a lead trumpet player in big bands and doing all kinds of fun stuff like that. As you're hearing, none of my trumpet teachers were, were doing these things because Gil was the, the, the funniest of all of them is that Barbara and I had one conversation about jazz band, which she says, oh, so you're playing in jazz band. I said, yeah. She goes, that's nice. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. And uh, you know, I saw, <laughs> Vince, I guess, counts. You know, he was all over the horn as well. And then Gil didn't really care uh, for the commercial side of the horn. He walked up mm. into the jazz band rehearsal once at the University of Miami and Whit Seidner came to me and says, what's Gil doing up here? I don't know. He just poked his head in. I went into my next lesson. He says, you really like that kind of stuff? <laughs> yes, Mr. Johnson, I, I really do. When I told him I was leaving, I left Miami a little bit early to, to join Maynard's band. And he said, Ding. are you, are you, are you Ding. sure? Are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I want to go do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, if that's what you want to go do. But the trumpet playing part of it, and I had this conversation a couple of years ago when I was down in Houston with Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes and uh, I, we had lunch. It was me and Mark, the, the section from Houston, Mark Hughes and Bob Walp, and uh, Barbara and Charlie came out, and, and, and Mike Chickowitz was there talking about his dad. So we all had lunch. And Mark asked me, okay, listen, I know you studied with her, and we went to school together, speaking about Barbara, because they went to school at Northwestern and studied with Vince Chickowitz together. He says, I know what she's telling you. How do you end up doing what you're doing with us? Which was going down to play lead in one of these shows. And I said, oh, it's very simple. I just figured 
this is where great trumpet teaching happens. You know, I, Mel Broyles and Barbara Butler and, you know, Vince DiMartino and Gil Johnson. These are great trumpet teachers. So I figured that must apply to all music, not just orchestral excerpts or just solo playing. So I thought, hmm, this must apply to everything so I can just apply it that way. That's just what I took with it and went. And Barbara kind of chuckled and they went, huh, I guess that makes sense. And I'm like, yeah, totally makes sense. So that's where that all comes for me. As you can see that most of my teaching came out of the orchestral tradition, which was much more, much more established pedagogy when we were growing up than is now. There are many more players now that cross styles and are much more established as pedagogues and teachers than we had access to growing up. So I just figured, well, I'll just take that and do, apply that to all music. That's how it works for me. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting, right? When you look back, I know for me, it's that I look back and think about, I couldn't have had a better combination of contributions from people, like, because they were all really, really different. Um, for me, it was starting with, you know, small town, Western Pennsylvania. My first teacher, other than what I got in school, was a, a man by the name of George Monaco, who I can still hear in my head today. You know, we've talked about George before, and, and he worked at the local glass factory. He was, you know, he wasn't a full-time professional music educator, but so I would go to his house for, for 30 minute lessons that lasted an hour and a half. You know, my mom would call looking for me and Lucy, George's wife would come in, George, you got to let him go. Like he's got to go home. But that's <laughs> like after the lesson, like we would sit and listen to records and I, that's how I learned about everything. I, he was my, you know, conduit for all that stuff. And then I look at, you know, undergrad school, I studied with a, a guy by the name of Bill Becker, Dr. William Becker, and I don't think we've talked about him too much, but what an incredible, like, knowledgeable guy. I learned more about rep, like all the solo stuff. He was like a mouthpiece fanatic, too, so I learned all the stuff about the ins and outs of mouthpieces. Like, as, a, like as an undergrad, I had all that stuff was in there. It helped you with your um, future in designing and just them. the real love of, like, yes, yeah, which, you know, a little of that kind of work wouldn't hurt you, Joey. You know, I'll to spend get, I'll get a little right time thinking about how mouthpieces are made. <clears throat> all that stuff was just kind of like, uh, you know, all kind of built in there, which is great. Um, then after when I was played some, but not a lot, you know. And so Kevin Eisensmith at Eastern Kentucky was perfect for me because he, he was such a diagnostician. He found some things that needed to be fixed. And without realizing, and I'll never, never forget the day sitting with Kevin when I realized he had changed my embouchure without me knowing that he had changed it. Oh, like he was wow. just, he was just nudge. I used to roll under going up, right? And then I couldn't get back out. So <laughs> if it was ascending, it was fine. And I did pretty well, you know, but then trying to come back down, I couldn't go downhill. Couldn't figure out why. But he never said, you know, all right, we're going to do this. He just kept nudging and guiding and suggesting. And then all of a sudden, one day we went back to something to play that I had initially played for him. And I realized that I could play it because he saw that it was complete, that it was done. And I couldn't believe it. Just masterful, you know, way that he he can look at things and identify them. And so I, you know, I picked his brain about that stuff constantly. Um, and then Keith Johnson at North Texas, Keith was the guy that just sewed together for me all the musicianship and the sound stuff and the ease of playing with anything technical that I might be able to do. He was the one that closed all those loops, you know, and made sense of all that. And as I look back at what I have to do in my own teaching, uh, contributions from all of them are there. Keith, 
Keith was so much a big picture guy, sometimes he wouldn't answer a specific question because it was too too much for you to think about. And I <laughs> remember I went like I would I went through I spent time formulating a question in my head to ask him to which there was nothing but a technical answer. Though I had him I in my mind I had him <laughs> pinned down. There was no way he was just going to be able to say, "Tim, why don't you just think about this and try this and do that?" So I I I was like literally typed it, memorized it. I had it locked and loaded. I go into the lesson, I ask him the question, and he managed a way around it and said, no, 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 <laughs> think about, why don't you think about this or do this? But I was ready, because I had reformulated it, plan B. I asked the question again in a slightly different way, and he looked at me and he said, I know what you're doing. I'm not gonna answer that question. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> that's not the way you should be thinking about it. You should be thinking about this. Oh my gosh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. So uh, yeah, I look at all that and of course, there's a bunch of, I know you don't want to hear this too, but there are a lot of, you know, conductors and other musicians along the way that fed Here we into go. that. But in terms of teachers, you know, like trumpet teachers, man, I feel like I had, and I stumbled into it. They were all really different, but all kind of completed the picture. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about lineage and what an individual player's lineage is, where they come from, it's really up to them to figure out what all of those inputs are going to mean for them at the end of their, at the end of their time, their, you know, those learning years, I guess. And uh, I would say the same thing that I had some very different trumpet teachers, um, very different backgrounds um, and, and well, different perspectives, but similar backgrounds. So um, studying at Oberlin and then Cleveland, um, it was very much the orchestral scene. Um, and then, uh, for my doctorate studying with Pete playing in the Met very much, um, still the orchestra scene. Um, but Pete Hold was like, a we very, take a second here teacher. as just this week, uh, Pete's announced he's, he's mm -hmm. leaving the That's Met. Right. He's been there a lot. 20, how many, 26, 27, 28 years, 28 years. I 28? mean, that's, that's yeah, huge. The, I years. mean, the legacy there, I mean, Pete is a remarkable player. We've, I mean, we've gotten to know him a little bit. You obviously know him a lot better, but boy, what an amazing player and a, a giver of trumpet, which is really astounding. Somebody who will sit there mm -hmm. and will absolutely talk to you about trumpet until the end of time, which I love, but we're going to wish Pete a uh, happy retirement. Yeah. Happy retirement. And his his yeah. story and as a we, player, player is also very different. Like after college, he had to quit playing the trumpet because his teeth hurt too much. Well, right. He was a drum corps. He was a self-proclaimed self hammerhead. Yeah. He was a hammerhead. Yes. He, he, could, he said he couldn't play the trumpet, but he could play double Gs all day long. Um, and he had to quit. He was literally counting bolts in a factory after he graduated. Um, he thought that was going to be the rest of his, his life. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's a fascinating story. Um, and very different than the other guys than you know, Jim Darling, um, who won, who I studied with at Cleveland, who, who won Geneva, um, <clears throat> the Geneva competition and played fourth trumpet in the orchestra, but had a double C. Um, and, uh, and then we were with, we were all with Michael for two and a half hours a week, um, in, in addition to our lessons with our regular teacher. Um, and at Oberlin, it was a series of teachers, a big time of transition at Oberlin um, when I was there. Um, and so a series of teachers, including Tony Plogue and Gene Moorhead Libs, and then the, the regular teacher, uh, Byron Pearson. 
Um, and then at the end of my time, um, Jim Darling and, and Charles Couch um, from the orchestra from, from Cleveland. So yeah, I think how we come up with our lineage is, is quite fascinating. I studied with Gatala in the summers when I was back home in Ann Arbor. Um, and as a sixth grader, I started studying with one of Gatala's students, um, Guy Bordeaux, who's a, who's a conductor, um, now conducts the orchestras at University of Akron. Um, go so, Zips. And then, yeah, Go Zips, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and then when I was in high school, I studied, with, um, I studied with Carter Eggers, who taught at Eastern Michigan University for about 45 years. And Carter had some really out, outlandishly strange ways of thinking about how to play the trumpet. Um, I read as, a, as a, um, an eighth grader, I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance um, right. as one of the books that he wanted me to read um, to sort of get out of my, this is how trumpet physically feels. Um, so it was a real a different way of thinking about it. He was big into the vocal side of playing the instrument and big into talking about how you would sing the part, how it feels physically to sing a part and what those, how that ties into playing the trumpet. And then years later studying with Pete, came sort of full circle, which is a really fascinating process, yeah. um, but also very different perspectives on how to make the instrument go. Right, I'm so sure. Brian, I'm sorry, Brian. So get us, that's a lot of trumpet, 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 trumpet. But now you are one of the world's great proclaimers of cornet. Yeah. Get us, get us there. Like, how does that, where do you, where does that come you know from? And how did you get there? Self-taught, never had a lesson. <laughs> and you're out. <laughs> And I'm out. Well, I started, I actually started on cornet. Um, that was when Atta I started. Boy. Yeah, started on cornet um, as a fifth grader in the Ann Arbor Public Schools. Um, and then came back to cornet when I was um, at Oberlin, Jim Darling. Um, when you played a cornet solo, he wanted you to play on cornet. Um, and so even even if it was non non-traditional mouthpiece, like a, a Bach 1C or something like that on cornet with a cornet shank. Um, and that, so I just carried that with me that when I played cornet solos, I played them on cornet. And then when I got the job at Rowan, um, the Atlantic Brass Band was in residence and the guy who was chair of the committee that hired me was the conductor of the brass band. And he was like, hey, you want to play in the brass band? And when the guy who hired you says that, you say, sure. So I started playing and then sort of really got the bug and then um, sort of really went over the cliff uh, when uh, in 2009-10 when I went to uh, England on sabbatical for the year. Uh, and then I studied with, I took lessons with um, uh, Philip McCann, one of the great um, historically um, famous cornet soloists. Um, he's the, the joke in, in, our, in our group, Trombone Mooney, that's when Philip McCann came up with the line, uh, what vibrato? Mm -hmm. I was in a lesson and I, I was playing a cornet solo and, and, uh, and I knew that he was famous for his vibrato. So I just laid on as much vibrato as I possibly could. I just went way, way beyond what is socially acceptable forms of vibrato. And he said, well, you see, Brian, you play very well. First thing we need to talk about is vibrato. And I said, is mine a little too American, a little too wide and a little bit too uh, slow? And he just said, what vibrato? <laughs> <laughs> it was like what? I, so well th this is good because this is the question i want to ask um and brian that, that this might be yours but what's the biggest gut punch you ever got in a lesson what's the thing that was said to you in a lesson that just made you go oof oh so <laughs> I, got, I, I have one but go ahead that was one two moments with pete um when i was studying with him at rutgers so he said uh, he said really early on like the first couple of weeks 
He said, I, I bet I bet people tell you you have a really, really warm sound when you play a really pretty warm sound. And I said, yeah, they say that all the time. And he said, no, you have a dull tone. <laughs> there it is. No offense, Bill. Thank you. I'm sitting right here. You know I can hear you, right? Um, so I'm in a lesson with Keith, and I happen to be working on Napoli, right? And on I trumpet remember, or on, on trumpet? It was on trumpet. Yeah, it was on trumpet. It was. Of course it was on trumpet. He knows yeah. better now. Well, I know better. So, I, uh, so I'm in there, and I like, again, I'm in there, I'm ready, I'm loaded for bear, and I'm playing in it, and I'm feeling pretty good about it, and I finish, and Keith says, man, you sound amazing on that. That is really going to be something when you learn all the notes. <laughs> <laughs> Just deadpan delivery. He was money, of course. He was right on, but I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, that summer I went to Eastman. I was 15 years old. I'm in a lesson with Vince Martino, one of the first lessons. And so he's heard my audition. He's heard the first, like, rehearsal. And he says, so what do you think your comfortable range is? Now, I know this is a trap. So I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, what note can I I know? I, I've got it, right? I'm like, okay. I said, I can play, I can play a high G. And he says, great. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start on G right in the staff, and I just want you to double tongue a major scale up to the two octaves. And I just, I just looked at him blankly, and he said, "Well, well what? I, I, you told me you could play it, so I assume you could do anything you would need to do on that." And he picked up his horn on a high G with the eyebrows going up and down at me, and all I thought, "Oh no." You know, that was, uh, you know, I was 15 years old. But, oh, no, I, I don't know. I don't know anything at all. So oh, that's, that's, that's what that looks like. That's yeah. what that means. When, when I was at Eastern Kentucky, the, the trumpet community in Kentucky around that time, mid-90s, was really cool. There was a lot of great stuff happening. In fact, we put a group together of all the universities to play at ITG. And so you could go take a lesson with Vince. I mean, he was right there, which I did. Um, right. And then I remember playing... I think it was the Hinnemann for Vince playing the beginning of the Hinnemann. And I remember him looking at me going, you know, Stowen, you work really hard to play the trumpet. <laughs> and you know, at, at that point I was like, wait, is he recognizing my work ethic or is he criticizing my, it became clear within just a second, but you know, and then Vince, of course, Vince was the thing, like I tried to pay him for the lesson cause I didn't know. And how many people have this story, which kind of brings us to our next, the next place I'd like to go with this is, you know, Vince said to me, now nah, you can buy me a Coke next time you see me. That was the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, and you know, what Vince needs to know is that, and I think I've told him this, is that by doing that, I mean, that put in my mind that that's an important thing to do for somebody, you know, absolutely. How many times have you heard a kid play? You kind of know the story, you know, what's going on. And of course you're not going to take any money. You're just going to pay it forward knowing yeah. that they're going to do the same thing. But how, you know, how many people look at the people, if you trace this, how many overlaps there's going to be? Vince is a guy, right? Vince is a guy. How many people in this country play the trumpet would look at Vince as part of their confluence? I would, without running the stats, I'm going to go with most. Yeah, a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah, he's a central figure, at least, especially in this country. But what you're just talking about, Mel Broyle said this to me my freshman year of college. He, he was talking, they were talking, he was talking about teaching. And I think I was his only student at Juilliard that year, and he was also teaching. You know, they all, all those guys teach at all of the, yeah. the New York conservatories. And he was saying, uh, talking about a specific player who shall remain nameless that wasn't doing any teaching at the time. Like, what's he got to what's he got to hide? This is our job. This is our obligation. And he took it very seriously that 
part of the obligation of being a professional is training the next generation and handing off so that there can be that growth in the, uh, the, the profession, that we're continuing that legacy. And that's in a, he thought of that and took very seriously that part of the job. Yeah, that's great. And it really is. I mean, think about the way that whether you, that's your person you're studying with or not, the influence you can have through that. It's mm -hmm. crazy. So have you seen some of these lineages lineages that these kids are doing, like tracing lineages? you back? Lineages? Well, I it's, tried to say it. You could say <laughs> trumpet trees. Trumpet trees would work trumpet for you. Trees. It yeah. involved articulation. <laughs> no shot. <laughs> no shot. Um, yeah, let's go with trumpet tree. <laughs> anyway, everybody's tracing themselves back to Chickowitz, right? And Brian, when you said, I think about this, that my teacher, Kevin Eisensmith, worked with Pete when they were in, they were in Georgia at the right. same time. That's right, they were. There's a connection there. And Pete played with Mel at the, uh, at the Met. At the Met. Right. Yeah. He said that was thrilling. <laughs> yeah. I'll I bet. Imagine. Yeah. He put on a show. He was fantastic. And what's the story with Mel? Didn't you bring him food from Texas? He asked you to bring him something? I, I did. He had played in the Fort Worth Symphony. So I was going home for San Antonio. And he said, you know, this is the 80s when it was harder. I mean, I'm from San Antonio. So paste picante sauce is a, is a lifeblood for me. And you couldn't even find that in New York at the time. And he said, you know what we can't find up here? We can't find good jalapenos. All the stuff up here is terrible. Can you just give me, give me some good jalapenos and bring them back with you? And he gave me a $20 bill. So I went home and I went to one of those, you know, into a grocery store where they have those industrial size uh canisters that were three dollars a piece so i got six of them and mailed them to myself so i walked into my first lesson after christmas with this giant box on my shoulder and my of course my box quad case that we all had in the 1980s oh, the box quad case. Oh, and i walk in and he said what do you got there i said well uh, these are for you and he opened up because you've got to be kidding me and i said well they were only three dollars a piece so there there you go and one of my trombone player friends who stayed there, I think it was two years later, I, I, we had seen each other. He says, oh, I, uh, I, I saw Mr. Boyles. He said, to, if I say to tell you hi, and he's still not out. <laughs> <He's> still <leaving>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Most embarrassing thing you've ever done in front of a teacher or that a teacher knew that you did. I'll, I'll start. I'll give you a second to think about it. So when I was in Eastern Kentucky, made re great friends immediately with this guy by the name of Dan Merkamp, who is now a successful band director in the state of Indiana. Joe, you, you probably know about him. Obviously. Anyway, well, hey, or at least he knows about you. Oh, my. At any rate, um, so it's Groundhog Day, right? And so we have, at that February time, 2nd. this is pretty funny, you know, it's a hilarious thing going on. And this was pre-cell phones, so this is... This is all landline stuff, and Dan and I were the two grad assistants. We were being run ragged, you know, so it's Groundhog Day. I think this is going to be hilarious. I get up sort of half awake. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe earlier, and I call, pick up the phone, and I dial, and I wait, and as soon as I hear hello, I yell into the phone, it's Groundhog Day, except that in that moment, I realized I had dialed Kevin Eisensmith's number, not <laughs> my friend's number. But still, I couldn't stop myself because I had set it in motion. So I, calling my teacher, right, after one semester at 6 a.m. yelling it's Groundhog Day into the phone. And he just says, okay, I'll see you in the office. Click. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. To this day, though, great story. Loves the story. We still talk about it.
Mine, yeah. What do you got? Anything? Mine not be, isn't as funny. It's a little mortifying if I can uh, embarrass myself. And our, uh, I was, I, I've always had an easy time memorizing. So uh, what we used to do at Eastman is on Thursday afternoon, we have what we called solo class, Thursday at 2.30. And, you know, we'd all get up. It's like a studio class and have different assignments of stuff we might play. And the assignment that week was to play something from memory. And I think I was playing Artunian on my uh, jury. So I'm like, yeah, okay. And I played it a bunch. I know it. I'm good. So I get up in front of the class. Start off. It's going fine. Get down to the bottom of the first page in my head because there's no music in front of me. You know, everybody's up in the front. Barbara sits in the back of the room. So I stand there. In my mind, I've turned the page and I see nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing. And I'm, you know, I've got friends right up in the front. They're like going, you know, they're trying to like, they're, all they're trying to help. Right. They're oh, like yeah. singing, they're leaning in. And I just look up. Barbara looks right and looks at me right and I says, So is that all you have? <laughs> wow. Said, yes. Okay, then. You can go ahead and sit down. <laughs> That's <laughs> mortifying. That part yes. of the tape is blank. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brian, you probably have never embarrassed yourself in front of anyone. No, never. It's not something I do. Right. <laughs> no, I I do remember my excerpt jury at, at Oberlin when Mr. Couch was sitting there and I was bombing on, um, I think it was, uh, it was uh, Prokofiev. Um, and, and I was just folding and I think I played the same section. Um, I don't know, like eight times. And he said, well, you have to play it right once before you can stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think we had done the week before we had done, we had done Mahler five um, with Spano. And uh, I was sort of still in that, that headspace and Ray Primru bailed me out and he goes, don't worry about today. I thought you sounded great last week. Oh, <laughs> bailed me out my jury. Yeah. Nice. Joey, I, Joey, I think you should change your story to Barbara says at the end when it's all over, she goes, Oh, I think that should cover the flybys. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> Finally, we reach the portion of our program we like to call No Offense. This is where we highlight something from the trumpet kingdom that is recognized, used, and touted, yet might not make so much sense to us pedagogically. We feel it is our responsibility and our duty to highlight such things to raise awareness, inform the masses, and generally start trouble. I'm happy to start today with why in the world would we start kids on 7C mouthpieces? Since this is a mouthpiece discussion, maybe we should definitely stay away from Joey. He doesn't. We, this isn't his area of expertise. We could wait till he leaves <laughs> oh the God. meeting and then talk about it. So my here is here are a couple of my problems. It's my premise. I think it's too small to begin with for them to make any semblance of a good sound, right? Then the problem is, and this is a reality, they're going to stay on that mouthpiece. It's not. Directors might not replace them. Parents don't know to replace them. And so that's what it's going to be moving forward. Okay. So why not at least put them on something like in the great state of Texas, a 5B to start, so that even if they're stuck there, it's something on which they can make a good sound. But I'm like on a mission to take all the seven C's in the world and melt them down and make something useful out of them. All, all of them? All of them. Even Scott's. There we go. <laughs> seven U. That's the seven C sharp. Exactly. The Belk Look, model. I, I I I agree with you here. 
I think very rarely is the seven C a, a great place to start. I think something in a five range is almost almost always going to be better for anyone. And the long term ramifications are important in the absence of lessons, in the absence of growth, in the absence of band directors and students who are really looking for what should I do next. They just end up staying, and then that's a huge problem. Now. Can we tie this back to last week where you said everybody should be starting on cornet? So if we're all starting on cornet, we're going to need a mouthpiece to start on cornet. And then when we make the switch to trumpet, where should they? Where should you begin on trumpet, assuming you're not going to start playing trumpet until about eighth grade? Mm -hmm. I think the key there, not to change too many things at once, keep the diameter the same. Of what? You haven't told me where you're starting on cornet. Well, I'm yet. starting, I want to start around a five. I want to start on this. I'm good with the 5B diameter and depth, right? To start, if if they're starting on trumpet, going through. If they're starting on cornet, I'd be okay with that as well, too. I think the 5 diameter is a better place to start. Yeah, and that depth of a B cup on a cornet with a cornet shank, sure, that's no problem. That sounds like a good plan. Wow, Brian's endorsement on a cornet idea. Hard to believe. Right. I would trust Brian on the mouthpiece issues because he's had some experience there. But... Yeah, so I, so well, how did it start? Why why did the seven C start? I Is don't that, know. It, it's that's one of those a things great that's, question. It, it, it's one of those things that we do it that way because we've always done it that way, which is one of the primary reasons I left the army. When you know, he asked the question, <laughs> "Why do we do it this way?" Well, we've always done it that way. That's not a good reason, but as far as I can tell, that appears to be the reason in trumpet. I don't know why. Didn't Bud play a seven C for like a long time in the orchestra? Don't Maybe. know that. Yeah. Well, that's a good reason to start beginners on it. Yeah, I have no, I have no idea where it started or why. But again, my problem is that you just yeah, people are blindly following it and then they're stuck with it. You know how many high school kids I run into, who when I say what well, mouthpiece are you playing, they say they're like horn players. You know, horn players don't pay attention to this, right? Right. They when you ask them, even the pros sometimes like they have to say, hang on, and then they flip it and look at it because they right. don't think about it, right? So how many high school kids I'll run into and say, what mouthpiece playing? Hang on, flip it and look at it, 7C. Yeah. At it's least we should it's be able a to fix. We should be able to fix this. Yeah. And I tell band directors when you are, like our school districts, like when you're setting up that stuff with the, with the local music store, just insist that they put 5Bs in for beginners. To just forbid them to put the 7Cs in altogether. I'm on a mission. And isn't the, um, the mouthpiece that's included with the... The Yamaha now almost equivalent to the seven C. Yeah, it's an eleven B four, which I think yeah. is in that same ballpark. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. So if you're starting everyone on seven Cs, no offense, but there's a better way. There's a better and, way. And stop doing it. And just stop it. We're better than this. And that about does it for today. Thanks for joining us on The Open Bell. Stay tuned, subscribed, or whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, and so do our sponsors who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell.